the report is not covered by secret professionnel or French legal privilege. And that has, I think, justifiably gotten a lot of negative attention by lawyers, by members of the bar, because you have this new regime where there are the possibilities of negotiating resolutions. There's expectations on cooperation, providing information. On the one hand, all of that encourages companies to undertake thorough investigations. But if the end result of that report, if it's conducted by lawyers, is not going to be considered privileged by the authorities, that provides a disincentive and I think a real chilling effect on the idea that companies are going to try to do this in a very thorough way. Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white-collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, back with another episode of the Hughes Hubbard Podcast, All Things Investigations. Today, I'm thrilled to have back with me Ryan Silliman and a first-time guest, and Gaustad, both from the Paris office of Hughes Hubbard and Reed. So, guys, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank Pleasure. you for having us. I'm going to ask each of you to tell us your current roles and what type of legal work you do. And, Anna, as the guest or first-time guest, I'm going to start with you. Thank you. Yes. So I am a European attorney, Norwegian and French, and started kind of my legal studies first in France and England and in the U.S. Started my career in London and also focusing on arbitra international arbitration, litigation, and white-collar criminal defense. Came over to Hughes Hubbard in connection with a foreign bribery case that I had worked on in Norway that both had a Norwegian prosecution side and World Bank sanctions proceeding in parallel. Since then, I've came over quite quickly to France to help basically French and European companies on FCPA-related matters. And since then, that was more than 10 years ago, our practice has really changed. I'm a partner in the what we today call the Investigations and Compliance Department. We focus not only on anti-corruption for companies, but also on increasing on economic sanctions, export controls, because that's really been a hot topic here in Europe as well, for the, particularly for the past two years, but I would say for even longer back than that, human rights compliance and other areas. Brian, what's your current role? Yeah, so like Anne, I'm a partner in the investigations and compliance practice here in Paris, where, as Anne mentioned, we really assist companies in a host of different types of compliance-related work and, and really all phases of that work, from proactive implementation of policies and procedures to proactive risk assessments, but also more pertinent to our topic today, internal investigations and helping companies resolve and navigate regulatory investigations, monitorships, and all of that sort. I began in the Washington, D.C. office of Hughes Hubbard. Before that, I worked for the Securities and Exchange Commission in the Enforcement Division and really came over to Paris for 
what I thought was a short-term assignment and has been an over-decade long odyssey through the compliance landscape. So it's been a great journey working with Anne and others of our colleagues here during that time. Well, my wife came to Houston for a two-year assignment from England, and we celebrated our 16th wedding anniversary. Well, there you go. Congrats. The <laughs> guys, we recently had a release of a document I'm going to call French Investigative Guidance, and I'm going to ask a little bit about the parties who released it, but I want to start with sort of a broader brush question. Several years ago, I was in Paris giving a talk at a compliance event, and one of the participants asked, when will there be a release of information on how to do an investigation? And as an American lawyer, I thought that was quite an odd and an expectation that the government would tell us how to do an investigation. But then I thought, well, maybe that's just the difference in common law and civil law or the way the French approach more general questions of corporate enforcement. So maybe to start with, if I could ask you all, why would we see this type of document, is it really demonstrate that the difference in a civil law basis or a common law basis, or is this perhaps even more unique to the French approach of how corporations should do business and comply with French statutes? So I'll kind of throw that open to get us started. Maybe I can start. I think first thing is that there have been internal investigations in the French legal system for a long time in other areas of the law, for example, in the labor area and competition law area. Internal investigations is not a concept that's new to the French legal system as such. But what is new, I think, is internal investigations in the context of corruption matters or you know, anti-corruption issues in general. And it's new also because up until 2016, when this vast anti-corruption reform was adopted here in France, there weren't really incentives for companies to conduct internal investigations in the shape and form that we know them today. And we can come back to that. But basically what the law has done is basically incited companies to come forward, to cooperate. It's kind of challenged the traditional role of the French lawyer a little bit in the sense that there's now requirements are certainly expectations for cooperation and self-disclosure even, which is very new here. So I think in that sense, the kind of connection between the internal investigation and a regulatory parallel investigation, I think there was certainly a need for guidance around that in this area of the law, because that is something that's new from the past seven, eight years. So that's the first thing. Coming back to your second point about whether it's a common law, civil law difference, I think a little bit, yes. I do think that here there tends to be, particularly in the French civil law system, and I, I won't speak for all of the civil law system, but it's true that there tends to be more kind of authoritative guidance or more detailed guidance in how to do certain things, including with respect to the compliance program components. And, and we can come back to that. And also how you kind of manage your risks. So I think Yes, it's a reflection on sort of a little bit on the French legal tradition. And I also think that there was a need for guidance in this area because it is completely new. Yeah, I absolutely agree with all of that. I think that it's also an opportunity for these two authorities, and we can get into who they are, the PNF and the AFA, to put their voice to this topic and how they view internal investigations should be conducted, the considerations that companies should have in mind when they're 
conducting internal investigations, particularly focused on corruption-related issues. We've seen other sources of guidance from the National Bar Council, for example, from the Paris Bar, and from other organizations. So now you have the authorities themselves issuing this guidance to put some of the considerations that they think companies should have in place out there for their consideration. Ron, let me pick up on one of the points you touched on, the the two agencies who jointly release this guidance, the AFA, or you call them AFA, and then the PNF. Could you explain to our audience who those agencies are, how they interrelate to each other, and perhaps how you as counsel for companies view both of those in the anti-corruption compliance context? Happy to. So the AFA and mentioned the overhaul and anti-corruption laws that came into force in 2016 commonly referred to as SAPANDU. The AFA was created out of those regulatory changes and is really the agency that is responsible for issuing guidance on how companies should be adopting and implementing effective compliance programs. So that's one of their roles. The other major role of the AFA is to conduct controls or what are essentially detailed audits of companies that are subject to the compliance program requirements of SAPANDU and assess whether they are in fact complying with these compliance program requirements. So they're not an investigative agency. They are really designed to assure compliance with the compliance program requirements of SAPANDU. On the other hand, you have the PNF, which is the prosecution agency and is responsible for investigating and prosecuting acts of corruption. So the two have issued these guidelines together, which is a little bit interesting because the AFA is not itself an investigative agency, but the two do work and collaborate and have signed an agreement to share information and coordinate. And in fact, if the AFA does identify potential instances of corruption, it's required to refer those to the prosecutors, to the PNF. So there is coordination between them. If I could turn to the guide itself, unfortunately, it's not been yet released in English. Maybe start with you, Anne. Could you describe the format of the guide and how a practitioner can or should utilize it in investigation going forward? So, you know, it's a document that basically provides a pretty detailed kind of overview of how to conduct internal investigations from the outset and through the end of the process. It really kind of takes the reader by the hand and walks through every step of the investigative process and what should be focused on and things like this. For practitioners in this area, it doesn't necessarily bring a lot of innovation, but it certainly is a helpful document to guide somebody who is less familiar with an internal investigation through each of the steps of the investigation. I don't know, Brian, if you kind of want to go through more of the details, but I think that's kind of the broader picture. I think One thing that I just wanted to mention, something that Brian brought up before, is it's important to bear in mind that the National Bar Council already provided very detailed guidance and recommendations on best practices on how to conduct an internal investigation back in 2020. And much of this is pretty similar to what we saw in the CNB guidance, essentially, with some differences and nuances that I think are important, particularly for private practitioners. Ron, let me start. I'm sorry, I didn't realize you were with the enforcement division of the SEC, but it leads into a broader inquiry I wanted to make. Does this document compare at all to anything you have seen, either from the SEC or DOJ, recognizing that, as Ann said, 
here in America, we tend to get higher level or broader principles. And then we as lawyers are left to fill in the details. I think there are some similarities you have, for example, as Ann mentioned, it does try to walk the reader through the different phases of an investigation. So you have some guidance on setting up an investigation team, issuing a procedure that helps make it clear for employees and other stakeholders what the different aspects of an investigation might be, making sure it's properly scoped, and then taking appropriate remedial action in light of the findings. So all of those, I think, general steps and phases are similar to what we would see in U.S. guidance, where I think there are bigger differences and more maybe intricacies are in the context in which it has been issued. And Anne alluded to this a bit. You know, there are in France much more stringent labor requirements, for example, that impose obligations on companies for how they take disciplinary action how and when they can take disciplinary action against individuals. There are data privacy considerations that come into play when collecting documentation or reviewing documentation. There are whistleblower regimes in the EU and more specifically in France that have to be complied with. So on those different areas, there's more specificity in the guide about how companies should take those considerations into account. And I think that's where the context that we're in here in France really plays in. There's also a notable difference, and we can get into that a bit more, on one passage in particular that's gotten a good bit of attention from lawyers on privilege. And there's reference in a specific passage that if a company decides to use outside counsel to assist or conduct the internal investigation, that one, from a conflict of interest perspective, that outside counsel should not be the same counsel that defends the company in a governmental investigation, which is different from what we saw in the bar guidance. And two, and this is perhaps even more controversial, that the report is not covered by secret professionnel or French legal privilege. And that has, I think, justifiably gotten a lot of negative attention by lawyers, by members of the bar, because you have this new regime where there are the possibilities of negotiating resolutions. There's expectations on cooperation, providing information. On the one hand, all of that encourages companies to undertake thorough investigations. But if the end result of that report, if it's conducted by lawyers, is not going to be considered privileged by the authorities, that provides a disincentive and I think a real chilling effect on the idea that companies are going to try to do this in a very thorough way, and I, I frankly don't think it's consistent with other information on legal privilege that we've seen from the Paris Bar or the other bar organizations, but that's a key difference that's received a good bit of attention here. To that, I think the Paris Bar has basically published a statement saying that it strongly disagrees with it. And I think one point that we haven't mentioned, but that is really important, is that this is non-binding guidance. It is non-binding guidance. And so... Some of these points, I think, because this is a relatively new area, will be eventually be decided by the French courts. It hasn't, they haven't been yet. So it's very likely that there will be some clarifications from the courts as these points come up in cases and will be subject to challenges. But it's important, I think, at this point to underline really the kind of 
non-binding character of this guidance because it's particularly as Brian says, you know, on privilege, it takes a very, very, I would say, aggressive view <laughs> and restrictive view of the privilege. And I think it would really, as Brian says, create a chilling effect on internal investigations, which is exactly the opposite of what I think the authorities are trying to do here. So Ed, let me ask you, or at least start with you on the following. One of the great mysteries to American lawyers is the French blocking statute. We all know it exists. We have no <laughs> idea what it means. And we're not sure if we can find any consistent case law around it. But overlaid with the blocking statute, of course, is GDPR. Yep. And so what challenges do you see or do you typically see, I suppose, in your routine investigations for a U.S.-based company around both of those, the French blocking statute and GDPR? How do you help a client navigate those either landmines or just bumpy roads? <laughs> Yeah, and maybe I'll take the GDPR first because it's something that, frankly, we spend time on almost every day in this practice now. And it's true that, you know, it was seen as something that was huge and complicated when it was adopted in 2018. And frankly, now I think we've all just had to integrate it as part of a, our investigative strategy. So really, I think one difference here in Europe is that you need to have a strategy with respect to how you are going to deal with the data protection aspects of the, and it needs to be from the outset of the investigation because the GDPR essentially requires data controllers. So the people who have the data and who are going to decide on how it's going to be processed in the context of an investigation to process the data transparently with a legal basis and in a manner that minimizes the risk of basically unnecessarily processing the data of the persons involved. And all of that seems a little abstract. How does it translate into practice? Well, it means that when you are selecting custodians, when you are selecting keywords, or when you're selecting custodians, you need to make sure that you really need their data. You need to make sure that you inform the people whose data are going to be who are going to be collected ideally in advance if there's a risk to the kind of integrity of the investigation then you could do it later but there needs to be a notice that explains what data is going to be taken for what purpose what measures you put in place to minimize the processing of the data the different rights that the individuals have to oppose parts or, or limits of the data you need to show that you have a legal basis or that you have a legitimate interest and so forth. So it really means that you need to do a lot of analysis at the outset. For example, if you are doing an investigation where you are likely looking at violations of the law and you know that there's a risk of potential disciplinary proceedings against the individual, in that case, normally if you're collecting a lot of data, you should do a data protection impact assessment which is a very regulated exercise that you need to put in place in advance. And then you need to give notice. And normally you should also have given notice of the potential processing of the data in the context of an investigation in your internal policies. So there are many things to think about. You need to think about it in the way you structure an investigation, in the way you're going to handle how you as a law firm deal with the data, how the forensic company you might be working with is going to process the data and so forth. Because what are the consequences if you don't? Well, the consequences if you don't is that you might basically be, if you're in a disciplinary proceeding or in a court, the evidence that you've obtained 
might be considered tainted and won't be admissible. That is one thing. And then you can also get, you know, obviously challenges from the concerned with respect to sort of illegal processing of their data, which could in turn lead to fines from the data protection authorities. So it's very real and it's very concrete and it needs to be taken into consideration. So that, I think, is something to bear in mind. I think we all were hoping that it wouldn't be quite this complex, you know, when the regulation first entered into force, but it is. And so it's becoming an integral part of a company's strategy and they're doing internal investigations. And on the blocking statutes, I don't know, Brian, if you want to touch Sure. I can, yeah, I'm happy to try to shed light on the blocking statute. The blocking statute, you know, I think we've talked before about, Tom, it's been in existence since the late 60s, has only been enforced in one instance that I'm aware of. And essentially, its name is a little bit of a misnomer. It's not intended necessarily to block the transmission of information out of France to other government agencies, but it is intended to make sure that the transmission goes through an MLAT, a mutual legal assistance treaty process, so that there's some control over it. Now, given its lack of enforcement, I think for a number of years, there was some consideration given to it, but maybe not full consideration. The authorities here, however, have reiterated that it is obviously still very much a real statute and have designated recently an agency called the CISE that is to be notified if companies receive requests for information from non-French regulatory agencies. So if they receive a request from the SEC, the DOJ, regulators in Brazil or elsewhere, they are to inform the CISE about that request. And then there can be some accompanying by the CISE of the company to make sure the transfer of data is consistent with the blocking statute. And that is referenced in the guide as well. So there's a reiteration of that point in the most recent guide from the PNF and AFA. So let me sort of end our pod by throwing out the following general question. You mentioned the privilege issue and, and a great discussion around GDPR, but are there any traps for the unwary, and here I'm really referring to U.S. lawyers who may be in charge of an investigation that you saw in this document? Or have those traps sort of always been there? You just have to be cognizant of the nuances of French law when moving forward. I could take a shot first, I guess. And very rightly pointed out the GDPR considerations. I do think those are very important to have in mind. I also mentioned briefly labor considerations. So there are, and I will say if with full transparency, a French labor lawyer, but there are you know, specific labor rules that govern, for example, when you can take disciplinary action against an employee. So at the point where you have certainty as to someone having committed acts that are against the code of conduct or the règlement intérieur or against the law, then you have a certain time period, typically 60 days, to take disciplinary action against that individual. So having those type of considerations in mind can be critical on when does that starting point begin, typically at the conclusion of an investigation or when you conclude your report, but having that in mind so that you don't miss the period of the window where it may be possible to take disciplinary action if that ends up being one of the outcomes of the investigation. And I do think the privilege issue, hopefully will, there will be greater certainty as to that. It's also, we've talked before, French privilege is already considered to be a bit weaker than privilege in other countries because it doesn't extend to in-house lawyers. 
So whatever additional guidance and clarity that authorities can give to the importance of privilege would be useful to have in mind for this context. Yeah, I would also come back to the labor law points. I think for U.S. attorneys, you know, I think it's important to bear in mind that if you're interviewing somebody, you need in France to inform them interviewees of the voluntary character of basically showing up for the interview now. If your employer tells you to show up for an interview during your work hours, you know, and you refuse to do so, then the employer is entitled to take disciplinary action. But it's important for the lawyer to know that you have to inform of the voluntary character of the interview, even if it could lead to disciplinary action at the back end. Something that's a little different here is that it will be interesting to see kind of if there's any case law coming out of it's the right to have an attorney present during the course of the interview if there is suspicion that could lead to disciplinary action against a person, an employee. And that is something that we're hearing from a lot of the attorneys that are representing executives here in Paris. It's something that they are extremely attached to and something that I think we will start seeing challenges on from the legal community. And the last thing I think on the, the French privilege, the secret professionnel, is that it has an absolute sort of character. So when it does apply, there is no possibility of waiver in the French system. And it's important to know that because it means that even if my client tells me to send the investigation report to a third party, as a French lawyer, I'm not permitted to do it. Only the client can do it. The waiver just doesn't exist here. And I think it's important to, because that is an easy trap. And as a French lawyer, basically violating the secret professionnel could not only lead to disciplinary proceedings, but it, it's a criminal violation. Well, guys, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. I really hope that the agencies will publish this in English, because I can tell I want to geek out on this when uh, <laughs> I can read it a little more thoroughly. But I wanted to thank you both for taking the time to visit with me. And I look forward to continuing this conversation. I'll see you, Pleasure. Pleasure.